0: Well, good morning again, church. Hopefully you can hear me. I think this is on. Maybe not. Yeah, it's on. All right, good. Before we begin this morning, if you would, go ahead and we will open with a word of prayer. And then we will get started. Let's pray. Father, thank you for today, God. I thank you for this time. Thank you for uh, this church, Father, and everything that it is. And Father, I pray this morning that as we see Your Word and and look into it, Father, that we would trust it. Um, God, we would would understand the significance of the things we're going to see in Scripture today. And Father, uh, we just pray that You would be with us as we go throughout our week. Father, please help this church to impact this community for Christ. Father, we love You, and we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. If you would, go ahead and turn in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 22. Genesis chapter 22. Should be pretty easy to find this morning. It's not like Hosea or anything. Genesis chapter 22. <clears throat> well, as most of you know, I'm filling in this morning as I did last week because uh, Brother Jim and several of our church members are in Israel. Um, they are planning to be home, I believe, Wednesday. Um, I was looking at the itinerary a little bit this morning, and I think they're going to head towards the airport uh, tomorrow night. Tomorrow night about 8 p.m., and then be home sometime, sometime Wednesday. And I would say, um, if you would, continue to be in prayer for them. Uh, of course, just the, the long flight that it is, the long travel time, and also I think they're expecting some weather uh, flying into Boston, which, which can delay the, the whole trip. And if you've ever traveled anywhere of long distance, whenever, whenever you have weather delays, it just compounds it greatly. So be praying for them. But as we think about that and talk about that, um, I was talking to Brother Jim before he left, and said, you know what, I think it might be neat if one of the messages that and felt too I needed to go this direction, one of the messages that, that we looked over and preached was uh, somewhere out of Scripture that they had just recently visited. And so as I was talking to him and asking him, he of course had no idea where they were going. He just handed me an itinerary. Uh, he knew Israel. He didn't know that much, but that, that was about it, folks. Um, so he gave me an itinerary and I was, I was looking through. And today, which right now it's about... Six thirty-seven 7 o'clock over there in Israel. Um, they have visited several places, of course, throughout the week coming to the end of their trip. Uh, but today they visited the Temple Mount. Temple Mount over there in Israel. And we know probably several things about the Temple Mount. Whenever I mention the phrase Temple Mount, you probably think a lot of different things. One thing for sure is tension, right? Political, religious tension there in the Temple Mount. What is the Temple Mount? Well, the Temple Mount is something that uh, the, the Muslims and the Jews have disputed for many, many years. right? You've got the Dome of the Rock, of the Rock there. There's significance there to the, the Islam religion. Of course, this morning, we're going to talk about uh, what's true and right, not what's false. Um, so, we're not going to talk a lot about that. But what makes it significant to the Jewish nation? Well, they don't really call it the Temple Mount. They mainly call it Mount Moriah, which you see that up on the screen there. And, we see many things throughout Scripture that makes this piece of land significant throughout the Old Testament. A couple of things that we're not really going to talk about a whole lot this morning, but I did want to mention, is this was the site that uh, the temples were built on. Of course, Solomon's temple and then the temple that we see destroyed in AD 70. Uh, we have still there in, in Israel the Wailing Wall. Many of us probably have seen that, know that. That's, that's the last standing wall, last standing structure, still a part of that temple. So that is something that makes it significant and holy to the Jews. But we also see kind of the the very beginning of this piece of land, what's believed to be there at Mount Moriah. And we see that in Genesis chapter 22. And if you've already turned there and seen seen kind of the subtitle in your scripture, you know what the event uh, is that we're going to talk about this morning. And that is Abraham taking Isaac to sacrifice him on Mount Moriah. So God, of course, has has, uh, reached out to Abraham. We see that in Genesis chapter 12. And here in Genesis chapter 22... He tells him, take your son Isaac. At this point, the promise has been fulfilled. We know the life of Abraham. We know that God called him out of this land where he did not know who God was and says, I'm going to give you a son. And here, Genesis chapter 22, he has that son. But God tells Abraham, take that son, go to the land of Moriah, go up on the mount, and do what? Sacrifice him, right? Crazy. Crazy, crazy stuff, right? But in in this event, in this story, we see... The, the faith of Abraham, but also the faithfulness and the provision of God. So we see that that's what makes it significant to the Jewish nation, uh, starting here in Genesis chapter 22. But when we look and we study this, this piece of land today, what is believed traditionally to be just right next to it is a place called Golgotha. Now Golgotha, you see that up on the screen as well. Am I good? Okay. Up there on the screen as well. Of, as well. And the word Golgotha means the place of the skull. We see in Scripture two places. Matthew chapter 27, uh, we're going to look in two places. Verse 32, it says, As they went out, they found found a man of Cyrene, Simon, by name. They compelled this man to carry his cross. And when they came to a place called Golgotha, which means place of a skull, they offered him wine to drink, mixed with gall. But when he tasted it, he would not drink it. And when they had crucified him, they divided his garments among them by casting lots. If it's not clear who we're talking about, John 19, starting in verse 16, says, So they took Jesus... And he went out, bearing his own cross, to the place called the Place of the Skull, which in Aramaic is called Golgotha. There they crucified him, and with him two others, one on either side, and Jesus between them. So we see Mount Moriah, and we know from Scripture, and we're going to look deeper into that here in a moment as we look and see what is significant about it in the Old Testament. But just close there, we have Golgotha, the place where they crucified Jesus. And as we've already seen, the word Golgotha means Place of the Skull. It's not a place that you really, especially in this day and age, don't want to visit, right? Hey, let's go out, let's have a picnic at Golgotha. You're not going to do that in biblical times, right? It's okay, folks. It's it's just a little bit of a joke. But today we visit it, we see it, right, because we know why it's significant. But Golgotha, the place of the skull, why it was called that is because this was a place of death. This was a place of death. This was a place of execution. Okay, Many historians believe that there's probably three or four reasons why... It was called the place of the skull. The first being, simply, is a place of execution. This is where they would take people to crucify them. The Romans had devised something that no one else had ever devised. The worst possible execution. Many historians, Christians or not, they believe that the crucifixion is, was the worst possible way ever devised by man to kill someone else. Everyone, anyone ever heard the word excruciating? You ever heard that? Any idea where that word comes from? Crucifixion. Right? We have a word in our English language that we trace back to the word crucifixion to describe intense, blinding pain. And that's what crucifixion was. We know what crucifixion was, but to go through it real quickly, they would take someone, they would stretch out their arms on a cross, and they would drive spikes through their wrists. Now, I know uh, some people traditionally think that, that it's through the hands. It wouldn't have been through the hands. It would have been through the wrists for stability. They nailed them to the cross through the wrists, and then, and to me this is the worst part, talking about crucifixion, they would take the feet... They would stack the feet, and then they would drive a spike through the top of the feet to the cross. And after that, they would take the person that they're crucifying, they would, they would set them up on the cross, and they would be simply suspended there by the spikes in their hands and in their feet. Now, some people did die from uh, on crucifixion through blood loss or shock, but most of the time, it wasn't from something like that. It was from suffocation. People died on the cross because they suffocated, which is... A terrible way for someone to die. I think we can all agree. No matter how you suffocate, that is a terrible way to die. The way that people would suffocate on the cross is because every time they would take a breath, they would have to push themselves up with their feet to get a breath because their arms are extended out. And so as time goes along, as they're losing blood, as they're, they're fatiguing, what would happen is they would slump. And so they would not be able to take a breath. And people lasted sometimes on the cross for days. And so when it came to the point where they were willing and ready to execute them, they would, and we know this from Scripture, they would take a club and they would break their legs so they would not be able to hold themselves up. Someone dying, crucifixion, it was a terrible, terrible death. So Golgotha, place of the skull is, I think, an appropriate name. But also, it's believed that maybe uh, it was called this because of the tombs, the graves that were there, that were surrounding, or also some people, and I, I've heard this before too, is believe that this place, it was called Place of the Skull because it looked like a skull, right? This was just a terrible, terrible place. In, in biblical days, 2,000 years ago or so, this was a terrible place to think of. The cross was not a, an, an instrument of celebration. It was an instrument of death and execution. We need, to, we need to understand that. But this morning, what we're going to see is that there are parallels between Mount Moriah and Golgotha. Not just geographically, but spiritually. What we see in scriptures, we see parallels there that align to our Christian faith and what makes these places significant in Scripture and in our lives. So if you would look there in Genesis chapter 22, starting in verse 1, we see that Golgotha and Mount Moriah, it is, they're both a place of willingness We see first the willingness of Abraham. It says, After these things, God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, and he said, Here I am. He said, Take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah, and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. So Abraham rose early in the morning, saddled his donkey, and took two of his young men with him and his son Isaac, And he cut the wood for the burnt offering and rose and went to the place of which God had told him. Now up to this point in Scripture, we know that God had asked many things of Abraham that would have required faith, right? We see in Genesis chapter 12, in the youth, our last series we went over last semester was a series over the gospel. And we studied this part. We started a biblical creation and we got to Genesis chapter 12. And we see in Genesis chapter 12, the grace and mercy of God displayed in a great way. Because the first 11 chapters in Genesis, what do we see and what do we learn about mankind? They're sinful. They're sinful, right? When I ask a question, you, you can answer. It's okay. I'm not gonna, stop talking. I'm not going to do that. Okay? Okay. They're sinful. They're disobedient to God. They're corrupt. We see at the very beginning, chapter 3, we see the disobedience of man and we see that man becomes more and more disobedient. I said over and over again last semester talking to the youth, this phrase, sin grows. Sin grows. It's not just one thing that happens. It continues to grow and compound, and it gets worse and worse. And we see the flood. We see wiping out mankind because of their sin. And then we see chapter 11, the Tower of Babel. Mankind showing this arrogant show to God, saying, we're going to put ourselves above you. We're going to build a big building, which to me just sounds extremely stupid, doesn't it? Mankind, this is what we think puts us above God. We're going to build a big building and we're going to put ourselves above the God of everything, right? That's what they were thinking. So what does God do? He takes mankind, He separates them through their language, and we see this this arrogant show of mankind. But then we see Genesis chapter 12, and what do we see God doing? We don't see God wiping out mankind. We see God reaching down to mankind. We see God reaching down to Abraham and saying, Abraham, I want you to go where I tell you, and I'm going to bless you, and I'm going to bless nations through you, and I'm going to give you a son. We know the story of Abraham, we know what had happened at this point. Abraham and Sarah, they didn't have any children, they were barren, right? At this point it was Abram and Sarai, right? They had no children, and here comes this God, and we know from numbers that Abraham did not know who God was at this point. We see God reaching out to Abraham and saying, you're going to go where I tell you. And what does Abraham do? He goes. There you go. You guys are catching on. He goes, right? He just gets up and he goes. We don't see any discussion. We don't see Abraham saying, okay, who are you again? We don't see that. We see him saying, okay, let's go. He takes everything he has, uproots himself from his family, and he goes, that would have taken a lot of faith. But here we see God telling Abraham to do something that is beyond most of our imagination. Right? He says, take your son, take the son of promise, Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah, and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. We know what a burnt offering is. We know he was talking about sacrifice. He's talking about sacrificing Isaac. Verse 3, though, what do we see Abraham doing? Going. There there is no hesitation that we see from Scripture. Do do you guys see that? Verse 2, take your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah, and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. So Abraham rose early in the morning. He just just went. He just did it, right? Abraham went because he understood who was telling him to go. Abraham may have not understood the circumstances and how it was going to play out, but he knew the God that was telling him to go, and he trusted God for what was going to happen. We see this willingness of Abraham at Mount Moriah. So how does that relate to Golgotha? How does that relate to us when we look at this place, this place of the skull where Christ died? The same willingness that we see from Abraham, we see even more so a willingness from God our Father. We see John chapter 3, verse 16. We know this verse. For God so loved the world that He gave His only Son that whoever believes in Him should not, excuse me, should not perish but have eternal life. God gave Jesus willingly. Abraham was willing to give Isaac. We see that. But see, Abraham's motivation was faith. Abraham was motivated by his faith in God. God was motivated by his love for you and for me. God was motivated to give Jesus because he loved us. 1 John 4, verse 9, it says, In this the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only Son into the world, that we might live through him. The love of God manifests. That means it's been been shown. It, It appears to us. How do we know that God loves us? Because He sent Jesus. If you're ever struggling in life, or you know of anyone who's ever struggled in life, and they say, well, I just don't know if God loves me. Don't look to your circumstances, church. Look to the cross. Look to the willingness of God giving Jesus for this sacrifice so that you and I might be reconciled, might be brought back to the God who made us and the God who loves us. But we also have to talk about, not only was Mount Moriah and Golgotha a place of willingness, but it was also a place of surrender. We see, first of all, we see the surrender of Isaac to his father. We see there in Genesis chapter 22, if you'll look there again. Starting in verse 7. <clears throat> it says, And Isaac said to his father, Abraham, my father. And he said, Here I am, my son. He said, Behold the fire and the wood, but, there is the, but where is the lamb for a burnt offering? Verse 8, Abraham said, God will provide for himself a lamb for a burnt offering, my son. So they went, both of them, together. Starting in verse 9 there. It says, When they came to the place of which God had told him, Abraham built the altar there and laid the wood in order and bound Isaac, his son, and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Then Abraham reached out his hand and took the knife to slaughter his son. Kind of a cliffhanger moment, right? He takes a knife and he's fixing to slaughter son. He's fixing to listen to the God who commanded him, right? But we see something out of Isaac here that I think a lot of times is overlooked in, in this reading of Scripture. We see a surrender of Isaac to the will of his father, don't we? Isaac, what, what does he do? He asks, asks his dad, right? He said, well, where's, where's the lamb? Where's, where's this animal that we need to sacrifice? We're obviously going to make a sacrifice. You've got the wood and all the supplies, but but where's the sacrifice? And what does Abraham say? Even, even here he says, God will provide. Right? God will provide a sacrifice. And we see Abraham gathering everything, building the altar, and then he takes Isaac and lays him on the altar. And we see no complaint from Isaac. Right? I'm sure we can see and understand. Some of you maybe know how old Isaac would have been at this time. I, that's not something I really looked at or, or studied. But Isaac is, is just a kid here, right? I mean, some of you, anyone here have teenagers? Teenagers normally don't understand why they have to clean their room, right? You with me on that, Tiffany? Yes, yay and amen, right? But Isaac here, he just obeys. He understands. I, I think it's, it's easy for us to, to conclude that the same God that Abraham knew is the same God that Isaac knew. We know that Isaac, he is willing to surrender himself to the will of his father. And you probably know where I'm going with this, but how does that relate to Golgotha? Because we see a son there at Golgotha surrendering to the Father's will. Matthew chapter 26, starting in verse 36, we read, Then Jesus went with them to a place called Gethsemane. And he said to his disciples, Sit here while I go over there and pray. And taking with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, he began to be sorrowful and troubled. Then he said to them, My soul is very sorrowful even to death. Remain here and watch with me. And going a little little farther, he fell on his face and prayed, saying, My father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. And he came to the disciples and found them sleeping. And he said to Peter, So could you not watch with me one hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. Again for the second time he went away and prayed, My father, if this cannot pass unless I drink it, your will be done." (laughs) And again he came and found them sleeping, for their eyes were heavy. So leaving them again, he went away and prayed for the third time, saying the same words again. So we see Jesus here, and the suffering of the cross, the suffering at Golgotha starts here in the Garden of Gethsemane. The Garden of Gethsemane, that word, it means olive press. That's what the word means. So, so we look in that, we look deeper into that, In olive press back in biblical days, what they would do is they would take olives and they would put them on a stone basin. And to get the olive oil out of these olives, they would take a heavy boulder, a rock, and they would literally roll this rock over the olives to crush them. To, to crush them. So, so the suffering at Golgotha starts here in the Garden of Gethsemane because we start to see the crushing of the sun here in the garden. Jesus knows what's fixing to happen, church. You know, growing up in, in a small uh, small church, I remember talking one day, and, and our Sunday school teacher talking one day, and, and the teacher brought up Jesus as a child, and, and Jesus, did he know whether or not he was going to the cross? And, and I remember Devin, my twin brother, not me, Devin, who, if you know Devin at all, he's, he's very blunt. He's very straight to the point, and he's very blunt. Isn't he, sweetie? Yes, he is. That's Sabrina that I'm talking to, by the way. I don't just call random people sweetie, okay? Just, just for the record. Right? So Devin's very blunt, and, and Devin said, well, of course. Of course he did. Right? Of course he knew why he came. And that teacher, he couldn't wrap his mind around why Devin would say that. Like, well, how could a little child, a little child, have that thought in his head? That would just be awful. That would just be terrible. See, it might be a nice sentiment, but when we study Scripture and we look at it, Jesus came for one purpose and one purpose only. To die for you and for me. Did he know? Absolutely, because he knows everything, right? He is God in the flesh. There is nothing that that is hidden from him. He understands. He knows. But we see here in the garden that Jesus is is in this struggling moment, and he is alone. His disciples are there, but they're really not there, right? They're sleeping. They they, They don't understand what's fixing to happen, but Jesus does. He prays three times. If there's any other way for this to happen, let this cup pass from me. But we see the willingness. He says... There at the end, my father, if this cannot pass unless I drink it, your will be done. See, we see a willingness of Isaac apart from his understanding and his knowledge of the situation. Isaac was willing, but he didn't understand what was going to happen. He didn't know what was fixing to take place. But we see a willingness of Jesus having infinite knowledge. Jesus understood completely what was fixing to happen to him. He knew what he was fixing to face. It's not that Jesus was surrendering to His Father's will without fully understanding what was fixing to happen. Jesus went to the cross knowing fully what He was going to do for you and for me. Why is that significant? It's significant because we see in Scripture, uh, John chapter 10, verse 17 and 18, Jesus from the moment, again, from uh, the moment He was born, through His entire life, He knew what He came here to do. John chapter 10, starting in verse 17, says, For this reason the Father loves me, because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my Father. Verse 18, no one takes my life from me. No one's taking it from me. I'm laying it down of my own accord. What's Jesus saying? He said, I'm laying my life down because I want to lay my life down. No one is taking this from me. I'm doing it because I'm deciding to do it. I remember years ago, um, talking about BCM, Bentley, I think this is appropriate. Um, I was thinking and, and looking at the scripture, um, there was a, a sermon that was preached. Uh, I believe it was during a BCM revival, which has been like eight years ago for me. Um, and being there and hearing, hearing this, this preacher, and it was a, a preacher in the area, and, and he's here, not here anymore, but he started a sermon talking about the most incredible verses in all of the Bible talking about the most incredible verses in all the Bible. And he, he was preaching that night and talking about the sufferings of Christ and the sufferings of the cross and what Jesus went through and what Jesus endured. Not just the physical suffering, but the spiritual suffering of being separated from God as Father and experiencing the full wrath of God. And he was kind of working backwards and he got to this, this point in the sermon where he said, and these are the verses that are the most incredible verses I believe in all of Scripture. And he read out of John 18, starting in verse 3, it says, So Judas having procured a band of soldiers and some officers from the chief priests and the Pharisees, went there with lanterns and torches and weapons. Then Jesus, knowing all that would happen to him, came forward and said to them, Whom do you seek? Why is that incredible, church? Because the Scripture tells us right there, Jesus knew exactly what he was getting himself into. Jesus knew exactly what was fixing to happen to him. Jesus knew exactly the sufferings that He was fixing to face, which, by the way, He didn't deserve. And as it says here in John 18, He knew all of that, and knowing all of that, He still stepped forward and said, Who are you looking for? He didn't push His disciples forward. He didn't try to hide. He didn't try to run. He stepped forward and said, Whom are you looking for? He said, Here I am. He knew exactly what he was getting into. We see a surrender of Jesus to the Father's will, but we also see Jesus willingly giving his life for you and for me. And the final thing that we see, bless you, my goodness. The final thing that we see is in Mount Moriah and Golgotha is we see the provided sacrifice. If you look there in Genesis chapter 22, starting in verse 11. <clears throat> so we end this We ended our last verses talking about kind of this this climax, this cliffhanger, right? Abraham, he has the knife and he's fixing to to kill Isaac. And then verse 11, very next verse, it says, But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, Here I am. He said, Do not lay your hand on, on the boy or do anything to him, for now I know that you fear God, seeing you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. And Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, Behind him was a ram caught in a thicket by his horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham called the name of that place the Lord will provide. As it is said on this day, on the mount of the Lord it shall be provided. So God told Abraham, take Isaac and have this burnt offering. And the moment before he offered Isaac his son, an angel stops him tells him, we know that you trust God now, we see that you fear God. And he looks over and he sees there's, there's a ram, right? There's a ram caught in the thicket. So he takes that ram and he offers a burnt offering right there and he calls a place the Lord will provide. For Abraham in that moment, the Lord provided a sacrifice instead of Isaac. Instead of his son, instead of the command, he provided this ram for, for Isaac. And as we know in the Old Testament, as we study, we know that there was this system of sacrifice. That The purpose of sacrifice was, was to cleanse sins. Right? We, we see this continual sacrifice over and over again. The, the priests standing, doing what they were supposed to do. But the problem is, is that the blood of bulls and goats couldn't really take away sins. We see that in Hebrews chapter 10, starting in verse 3. It says, but in these sacrifices there is a reminder of sins every year. For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. See, this was a broken system because we are still sinful. This was just a picture of what was to come. This was a shadow pointing to the substance. See, here on Mount Moriah, God provided a sacrifice for Isaac. So how does that relate to Golgotha? Because at Golgotha, God provided a sacrifice for you and for me. Amen. We see that in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, starting in verse 7. It says, Cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump as you really are unleavened. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. We know Passover, referring to the, the Passover feast, and when God brought Israel out of Egypt, taking a lamb... Right, killing the lamb, sacrificing the lamb, putting the, the blood above the post so that the angel of death would pass over that household. He says Christ is our Passover lamb. Christ is the sacrifice that you and I needed. Hebrews chapter 10, starting in verse 11. I love these verses. It says, And every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. The priest stands daily, right? The priest stands daily because the work is never done. We see there in the verses before, right? It, it's a constant reminder that they're still sinful. There's still a sacrifice that needs to be done because they continued to sin. The, the blood of bulls and goats, they, they couldn't take away sin. But Christ, offering Himself, sacrificing Himself, it is the one sacrifice that is needed. After Christ did the work on the cross, He sat down at the right hand of God. The job was finished. What does He say on the cross? Three words. It is what? Finish. In church, he meant it. He meant it. It was done. There was no more sacrifice. There was no more work to be done to earn our forgiveness or earn our salvation. Christ did all of it. And he did it for you and for me. Isaiah chapter 53, about 800 years before Christ was on the scene, we see scripture that points to Jesus and the sufferings of the cross. It says, He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hid their faces, he was despised. And we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was a chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed." All we like sheep have gone astray, and we have turned out, everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Christ suffered and Christ was crushed. Because it was something that you and I deserved. Do, do we under, I hope we understand this. I hope that we're seeing this picture. Because the cross of Christ is something that I deserve. I deserve to go through the suffering of the cross. I deserve to go and to experience the full wrath of God. But instead, Jesus stepped in the way and Jesus took the full wrath of God. The brunt of God's punishment He took that I deserved. All of my sin, all of my iniquity, all of my transgressions was laid on Jesus. And He took the punishment. Every Christian needs to understand that Jesus being on that cross... Jesus being on that cross is what you deserved, But because God loved you and because Jesus loved you and because Jesus was willing to go to that cross and suffer for you, we do not face the wrath of God. We do not face what Jesus faced. He took our suffering. The substituted sacrifice for Isaac was the first of many that could never take away sin. Jesus, the substitute for us on the cross, takes away our sin once and for all. And church, this is why Scripture tells us to, to believe on the Lord Jesus, to have faith on the Lord Jesus, because He is the only one who can save. Looking at it from a sacrificial point of view, we are sinful and we need something else to take the punishment. Anyone who is outside of Christ, they will face the punishment for their sins. They will face the wrath of God. And that's why Scripture tells us to believe, to have faith on the Lord Jesus, because He took all of it already. Anyone who is in Christ, we will not experience the wrath of God. Because Christ took it all for us. See, in, in Mount Moriah, on Mount Moriah, I think that's a story that's sometimes an event that, that makes people uncomfortable. But we see God's character revealed at Mount Moriah and Golgotha. We see God's character still uphold, upheld. Because God never intended for Abraham to follow through with the sacrifice. God never intended for it to be. So God's moral character was still upheld. It was a testing, right? And and it was an event that took place to point to the cross that would take place later on. But also at Golgotha, we see God's character still upheld. God is a God who hates sin. God is a God who is wrathful and just and He hates sin. He hates disobedience to Him. Church, we can't just preach a God who is loving and kind without preaching a God who also hates your sin. He hates my sin. He hates your sin. He hates He is a just, wrathful God. But here's the dilemma, church. He is also a God who loves you. And He is a God who loves me. And at the cross of Christ, we see God's justice and God's love still upheld. God's justice because He still poured out His justice. He still poured out His wrath, but He didn't pour it out on you and on me. He poured it out on Christ because Christ took the punishment for you and for me. And there we see the love of God still upheld. To wrap it up, church, and I'm wrapping up right right here, um, I heard a story once to illustrate this. There was a village years ago, and this chief of this village was a just chief. He was, he was strong, he was stern, he was strict, but he was also loving. He loved his people, loved everything about his culture and his village. When they started noticing that out of their storehouse, out of their food storehouse, that that someone was stealing food. At night, without anyone noticing they were stealing food, they were taking food from it. So the chief, of course, being a strict, just chief, said, we need to catch this person, and when we do, they will experience a a lashing, they will experience a a whipping, a punishment that that the village had for anyone who was doing any kind of wrongdoing. Well, as it turned out, they caught the, the man who was doing this, and it turned out to be the chief's son. Chief's only son, the son that he loved, that he cared for. But we see the dilemma of the chief. He had his people, had, had his judgment that he still had to uphold, but he also had the love for his son. And so judgment day came and they had his son tied to the whipping post and, and the chief was sitting there on, on his chair, on his throne. And right before they started the whipping, they, they come out there and the, the son is tied and they rear back to start the whipping. The chief stops him, stops everything. He goes out there. He goes to his son and he wraps his arms around his son, around his back, exposing himself. he says, okay, now you can continue. And see, in that story, what we see is the gospel displayed. Because Jesus took the full brunt of the punishment that you deserved. So that instead of heading towards punishment that we deserve, we are heading towards an eternal life with God a grace of God that we don't deserve. So church, my only desire this morning, I have nothing else. Some of you are like, yes. right." My only desire this morning is that we would focus on the sacrifice of Christ. That was it. That we would see what Christ did for us and how He gave Himself for you and for me and took the brunt of God's punishment so that we wouldn't have to. So church, if you need to come down, you need to pray, you need to focus... On God, you need to rededicate your life, whatever you need to do. We're going to have a time of invitation here. So if you would, let's pray.